Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 39, The Scott Cast, Part 5. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now, the members are listening to an episode on Celtic builders. Here's a sample. Typically, when people think about construction in the ancient Celts, they either tend to think about the megaliths, like Stonehenge, or they think of a primitive culture where they were either living in earthen mounds or in caves hiding from the sun. Nothing is true about either assumption, by the way. As we've spoken about earlier, the Celts had nothing to do with the building of Stonehenge or the other megaliths. The Celts came along long after they'd already been built. And as for living in caves and being afraid of the sun, well, they might have been afraid of the sun. I mean, many Celts aren't white, they're pale blue. But they certainly weren't cave dwellers. Rather, they were proficient builders, so let's talk a little bit about what Celtic buildings would have looked like. If you'd like to learn more, you can sign up for membership over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Matthew, Kimberly, and Catherine for signing up already. Now, I've been struggling a little bit with how to approach this episode. After all, we're out of prehistory, and we're now in the Romano-British period. And of course, we've covered this period in history already, and a lot of the major events, well, the major invasions, have already been discussed at length. But I think I have a plan. I'll be talking about the parts that were glossed over, and we'll try and highlight the development and the changes that occurred in the meantime. Basically, I'm going to try and keep talking about Scotland in the same way I've been doing so far in the series, filling in the gaps and whatnot. And on top of that, I'll try to put the story you already know into context from the perspective of the tribes in the north. So if you're new to the podcast, this really isn't the best place for you to start, because I'm going to be assuming that you already know quite a bit about British history, and that you've already listened to the prior episodes. So fair warning there. Okay, so here we go. So it's sometime between 71 and 74 AD, and Petilius Cerealis is marching north. Do you remember him? He was the guy who had his butt kicked by Boudicca and went racing off afterwards. Well, Vespasian wanted Scotland, so because he was in charge, he needed to go north. We'll join him as he reaches the Gask Ridge, to the southwest of Perth. He'd already dealt with rebellious Brigantes, as well as their leader, Venutius. And now he's in a situation where he needs to separate the Venicones of the highlands from the Caledonii to the south. So he built a Lemus, which in this case was a line of forts and watchtowers between the two people. And this was probably all part of the standard Roman tactic of divide and conquer. But there are a couple facts in this that are pretty interesting. The first is that this wasn't a wall. It was just a series of watchtowers and forts along the wall. And that suggests to us that the area where they were constructed, the Gask Ridge, must have been largely deforested by this point. Otherwise, what was the point of building them? I mean, they'd have natives just sneaking by all the time. No one would have seen anything. So the old wild wood that we've been talking about for about a month now is gone. At least at the Gask Ridge, it's gone. I mean, it must have been. The other fact that's interesting isn't as obvious. It's the impact that this line would have had on the natives. So suddenly there are a bunch of foreigners in forts and watchtowers watching everything you're doing. That would be bad enough, but they also were demanding that if you cross the Lemus, you'd have to be unarmed, and you'd have to pay a fee for any goods you were bringing across the border. 
Imagine how that would have been for these early tribes. As far as we know, they didn't have any system of currency. We're not finding coins and stuff there. So they would have had to have learned the entire concept really quickly. And actually, let's stop for a second and imagine what it would have been like to be one of these early Veniconi. Currency seems simple enough to us because we've used it almost our entire lives. We get indoctrinated into it as children with piggy banks and allowances, and we watch commercials, and we have passive exposure by watching our parents use money. There are all manner of ways that we're accustomed to having money in our lives. When we're children, we might not be familiar with the relative values and whatnot. For example, if I had $100 a week when I was 8 years old, I would have felt like Bill Gates. But at least we had the concept down. Now imagine living in a bartering, gift-giving society, and then having some foreigner telling you that he will give you a small coin, which has no inherent use, in exchange for a bag of grain. It's just a little piece of metal with some designs on it. I mean, sure, it's pretty, but you don't need jewelry. You need some tools. But he tells you that you can go and use that coin to get tools from someone else. How does this foreigner know whether or not the blacksmith wants jewelry like this? And besides, couldn't the blacksmith just make something just as pretty, if not more so? And if he can, then you're out a bag of grain and you've got nothing to show for it but this silly little disc of metal that you can't use for anything. It would be a little bit jarring, right? Now one quick thing to point out, though, is that not all Britons would have been unfamiliar with currency. And the farther south you go, the more likely the tribes were to be involved in trading and thus accustomed to currency. But we don't have any record indicating that the Venacoti at this point were using currency. So your average farmer who just wants to get some tools would have probably had quite a sense of culture shock. However, the Romans had force on their side. And this was an era of might makes right. The Romans needed supplies, and it was clear that they could take them if they wanted to. So it would be better to get this strange little metal disc than get nothing at all. But then again, the Romans were just demanding those discs back when you tried to cross the border to trade goods with your neighboring tribes. So all in all, it was just not a good deal for the natives. And to ensure that no disgruntled natives got a wild idea and lashed out at the Romans, it was established that the natives needed to be disarmed. Now, considering the warrior culture of the Celts and the emphasis on heroic combat, I suspect that the rules regarding weapons would have been even worse than the new currency system. And this all would have combined to have created a wet blanket on the local economy, travel, and politics. I mean, gathering with neighboring tribes to come up with a plan to oust the Romans would have been very difficult given the limas that Cerealis created. And then you have the fact that the Romans were deliberately disrupting and exploiting the local economy, which again would have made it really difficult for the natives to go to war. I mean, if the Romans were taking up a bunch of your available food, you wouldn't be able to spare the time and manpower to go fight, because you need to work extra hard just to keep your family fed. All in all, it was a brilliant tactic to keep the natives suppressed. But that isn't to say that there weren't outbursts against the Romans. I'm almost certain that early in the development of the Lemus we've been talking about, there would have been quite a few outbreaks of violence, but the Romans were able to deal with whatever these Britons threw at them. Now, while the Romans weren't destined to stay there very long, they probably didn't know it. We can make that guess because they put a lot of effort into building the camps, and that indicates that there was some thought that this might have been more permanent than what it was. But, you know, it wasn't going to be. 
So moving forward. So now we're in 78 AD, and we have Agricola moving his forces north. And as he goes north, he's moving through the hills and valleys, six men abreast, and all too aware that he was being closely watched and under constant threat of an ambush. And actually, we can see from the placement of forts and roads and campsites during Agricola's march north that the threat the tribes of the north presented was a very real concern for him. Take, for example, the road near Crawford. Agricola could have followed the Clyde, which would have made it much more easy for him to march. I mean, you're just going up a riverbed, right? But instead, he chose to build the road so it zigzagged up the hill, and then moved along the ridge of the hill. It doesn't take a general to see what he was worried about. What he was trying to avoid here was having the road be flanked by high ground, which would have been an ideal situation for the guerrilla tactics that the tribes of the north liked to employ. I mean, Rome was militarily powerful, but we would be foolish to assume that the tribes of the north didn't present a real and present threat to the general and his men. Actually, I'd like to read to you a few selections of Tacitus's Agricola to give you a sense of what Agricola and his inner circle probably thought of these strange barbarians to the north. In the case of the inhabitants of Caledonia, their red-gold hair and massive limbs proclaim German origin. It is plausible on a general estimate that the Gauls occupied the adjacent island. You can find their rites and religious beliefs. The language is not much different. And now he continues, and he's going to have some stuff to say about how they engage in warfare. Their infantry is their main strength. Some of their people also engage in battle with chariots. The nobles are the charioteers. Their clients fight for them. In former times, the Britons owed obedience to kings. Now they are formed into factional groupings by the leading men. Indeed, there is nothing that helps us more against such very powerful peoples than their lack of unanimity. It is seldom that two or three states unite to repel a common threat. Hence, each fights on its own, and all are conquered. To the Romans, Scotland was strange and otherworldly and populated with people that seemed strikingly like the fierce tribes that had given them so much trouble on the continent. The same people that had sacked the Eternal City through force of arms centuries earlier. The only thing that was saving them was the fact they weren't unified. Which, of course, was something that Rome would want to maintain. But you can feel the apprehension and disgust they felt for Caledonia. It's no surprise that slurs like Bredunkali were used. Hell, Tacitus wasn't even pleased about the land. The climate is miserable, with frequent rain and mists. But extreme cold is not found there. The days last longer than our part of the world. The nights are bright, and in the most distant parts of Britain so short that you can hardly distinguish between evening and morning twilight. If clouds do not block the view, they say the sun's glow can be seen by night. It does not set and rise, but passes across the horizon. I think someone was a little bit homesick. And it wasn't just the weather and ever-present sense of danger, it was also home to strange religious sites, such as standing stones and tombs. And while the Romans could engage in a war against Druidism in the south, such as what Suetonius did to Yenis Mon, much of Caledonia was out of their reach. Strange weather, weird time changes, and terrifying natives, 
And now they had to deal with a religion that was so scary that it had been outlawed. Actually, I have a small side tale to give us a sense of what they were encountering to the north. So let's go a little farther forward to 83 AD. Here we have Demetrius of Tarsus sailing home. But he's going the long way home, under orders from Domitian, in order to map out the wild lands of the north. During his journey, he found an island of native holy men up in the islands of Scotland. Apparently, these holy men were gifted in divination and could read meaning into the raging storms of the area. Now, when he found this island of holy men, he didn't call them druids, but it's quite possible that that is what they were. After all, this was during the druidic period, so it would make sense. So he might have an island of druids. And it's been argued that this island that Demetrius found might have been Iona. And there's a few reasons behind this theory. The first is that Iona was actually a misprint of its actual name, Iova, which translates to U Island. And as we've already discussed, U's are one of the trees that are tied to Druidism. So it would make sense that an island of holy men would also be an island that was home to a grove of sacred trees such as yew trees. Second, we've seen throughout history that while religions may change, holy sites tend to be rather stable. They just get repurposed for the new religion. And as we will learn about later in the podcast, Iona was a Christian holy site later on. And finally, according to legend, St. Columba arrived at Iona 500 years later, and when he did, he had to expel a group of druids. So at least according to legend... The island was a stronghold of Druidism. So could these Druids that have been expelled been the successors to that group of holy men that was encountered by Demetrius? There's a lot of ifs and guesses involved there, but it's an interesting thought, and maybe Demetrius found an enclave of Druids that would survive well beyond the Romano-British period. Who knows? And this sense of mystery is part of what makes early Scottish history so fun. But the point is that Druidism is probably alive and well in Scotland during this period. Anyway, back to the Iron Age Scots. So we've got Romans running around in the north, causing trouble, turning tribes against each other, building walls to keep them from unifying, and generally doing all the things that Romans are wont to do. And that would be bad enough, but they were also antagonizing the local population in other ways as well. For example, there was a sacred plot of land at Aildon Hill, so, the Romans decided to build a tile-roofed building right in the center of that sacred plot of land. Stay classy, Rome. Now, was this intended to slap the local population in the face? It's hard to say. It was at the top of a hill, and being able to signal for long distances was very important to the army. So there was a reason for building the signal tower. And actually, as a result, you might be wondering if this was just an unintentional slight. I mean, they might not have even realized that the land was holy and what they were doing was seen as sacrilegious. But here's the problem. There was a bigger hill nearby, which actually had better views of enemy territory, which might suggest that this was an intentional move and deliberately to antagonize the local population. But the problem with the larger hill is that it didn't have a direct line of sight to the fort at Newstead, which was the major fort in the area. So the larger hill wasn't an ideal spot. What they would have had to do is build another fort so that they could actually see. 
So maybe it was just a matter of being as efficient as they could and just building the one signal tower. So basically, whether or not the Romans were doing this intentionally is really hard to say. But the point is that regardless of their intentions, they were kind of acting like And while we're on the topic of Romans in the north, let's talk about Burnswark Hill. This was the site of the largest hill fort in southwest Scotland. There's a good chance that later on it actually became the location for great religious bonfires and feasts, probably four times a year. This was an ancient site, and it was quite possibly religious in nature, at least on occasion. So, of course, the Romans used it for target practice. You know, like you do. But I don't want to give you the impression that the Romans were all bad. I mean, this is history, and therefore it's complicated. We rarely find black and white situations in history, and this is no exception. I mean, you would think that, after this picture I painted for you, that the natives would be out for blood. And certainly some were. But there were also tribes like the Vododini and the Venicones who actually allied with Rome. See, the thing is, is that on the flip side of all this, life in Celtic Britain was fairly rigid with not a lot of opportunities to better yourself. If you were a farmer, for example, it wasn't as if you'd have much of a chance to rise up in station. Rome, conversely, provided opportunity for betterment, if you joined the army, that is. Not to mention that you'd have access to all kinds of goods and stuff from all over the world, and you'd be part of the greatest empire in the world. But ultimately, for your average farmer, having the opportunity to not be a farmer and become a citizen of Rome after giving up decades of your life might have been a very seductive option. And that might explain why Tacitus writes about Britons being part of the army that invaded Scotland during the Agricola campaign. I mean, of course, signing up for the army was no small matter, but maybe some thought it was worth it. So that was the situation that the tribes of the north found themselves in. The Romans were favoring some tribes, brutalizing others, possibly intentionally antagonizing occupied regions, but also providing opportunities for advancement that the natives would never have even dreamed of. So it's kind of complicated. And now we're getting into a period that we're familiar with, Agricola's march north and the following invasions. So let's fast forward to Mons Graupius, where Agricola clashed with Calgacus, which translates to the swordsman, and his reported 30,000 warriors, both young and old. Which actually, the young and old part, not to mention Tacitus's imagined speech by Calgacus, might give us a hint as to how the army was set up. Historians describing Celtic battles have mentioned how the oldest warriors would stand in the front with the younger warriors behind, and then the younger warriors would be standing in front of those who were younger than them, and so on and so forth. So that might have been what the lines looked like. And Tacitus gives us this impression that the idea is that the warriors are fighting for the memory of their ancestors and the defense of the younger generation. And maybe that was it. But anyway, that might have been what the lines looked like. And as for the atmosphere of the battlefield, they were probably accompanied by great carnexes raising a terrifying cacophony. There's probably battle cries and all manner of unsettling behavior coming from the horde. Now later, Herodian would write about how the northern British, meaning those beyond the wall, generally walked around naked and would often tattoo themselves with animals and other designs. Members will recall that this harkens back to the early Celts, the elite of whom would fight naked, probably to show their courage and valor. 
or maybe to allow the gods to see their tattoos, and that way the gods would know who the warrior was and lend him or her their power. A spiritual armor of sorts. And sometimes these naked warriors would go into a blood rage or rage fit, much like Cuhulain would in Legend. Rage fit is something that might seem alien to you, but you've probably heard of something similar. The Vikings would call these sorts of warriors berserkers. Basically, we're talking about potentially inebriated warriors who are driven into an absolute frenzy as they go charging into battle. Good times. But one thing we should point out before we go forward is the fact that Haradian isn't exactly unbiased, and I find it highly unlikely that the tribes of the north just walked around naked all the time. Anyway, you're probably wondering whether or not there were painted or tattooed raging warriors at Mons Graupius. And honestly, so am I. I mean, who knows? But it is quite possible considering the Celtic background of the region and whatnot, and it's unlikely that all of a sudden years later they would adopt these tactics. Chances are that these are just part of the Celtic background of the region. After all, Herodian was writing about Celts in Scotland after this period. But anyway, we don't really know. Now we already know how Mons Graupius ends, since we covered it months and months ago. It was a slaughter. And Agricola, who had seen the will of the South broken following the butchering of Boudicca's army, probably figured he could do something similar in the far north. And then, like his predecessor Suetonius, he marched further into enemy territory and wrought a great amount of destruction. For example, in Aberdeen, we found evidence that the agriculture in the region was so badly damaged that it would take centuries for it to recover. So much like Suetonius, Following his victory, Agricola was out for blood. It seems that some of the natives, in response to this horror, retreated to hill forts, or even went so far as to start building new forts in an effort to weather the storm. You know, I've been thinking about this battle as I've been putting this episode together, and now that we're focusing upon the Caledonian portion of this battle, there's something very interesting that we glossed over in the original podcast that we probably should talk about. We're starting to see the tribes working together. The Romans, by and large, were able to utilize their divide-and-conquer methods to great success in the early conquest, but with Mons Graupius, it's clear that the tribes are starting to communicate with each other and might be recognizing that their survival depends on working towards a common goal. But this was no barbarian conspiracy. At least not yet. But we're starting to see the beginnings of a pan-Caledonian organization. Now, following this defeat and the repercussions that followed, the tribes actually got a little bit lucky. Domitian really was just a terrible and paranoid emperor. And so, following Agricola's success, he got a little bit worried about this hotshot general and had him recalled. And thus, the native Britons to the north were given a little bit of a reprieve. And actually, we're going to see that repeat again once we get to Caracalla. So anyway, throughout these invasions of the north that we've learned about in prior podcasts, we've heard about heroic tales of emperors and generals cutting their way through swamps and dark woods populated by violent natives that were prone to ambush tactics and all manner of horrors. And as a modern listener, you might be thinking, hey, I've been to Scotland. And sure, the thistles grow waist high, which could be a problem for men wearing the rather, uh, airy, legionary uniform, if you catch my meaning. But that doesn't seem all that terrible. I mean, what's with all the complaining and acting like it was a Herculean feat to go north? Well, the thing is that Scotland has been largely tamed in our modern time. The land, not necessarily the people. 
But back then, back before there were cars and trains and before anyone drained the swamps and cut down the forests, I mean, think about it. We really don't see many natural boundaries these days, not unless we're looking really closely for them. But back during the period that we're talking about right now, to cross the fourth would have been incredibly significant. I mean, we're talking about massive bogs and woods and all kinds of problems for the legions. Basically, getting up to the north was a gigantic pain in the butt. So more often than not, the northern territories were left to their own devices. I mean, sure, every now and then they're going to come north. But by and large, the Romans just found it to be way too much trouble to go up there. But here's the thing. The Romans came into their lands. They killed their people, destroyed their farms, and desecrated their holy sites. The sh** was on now. Just because Rome was becoming more defensive, it didn't mean that the tribes were just going to let the old grudges die. For example, war bands were on the move between 115 and 120 AD and actually managed to destroy the legionary fortress at Aboricum. Now, there are some who claim that this is where the ninth met its end, but we have no hard evidence of that. But regardless, just because Rome had enough of its adventures in Caledonia for the time being, it didn't mean that the tribes to the north were going to let things slide. In fact, things were getting a little bit out of hand, and due to the increased barbarian troubles, defenses were having to be improved. For example, in 119, the fort at Stanwix had to build a turf wall to deal with the movement of the tribes in the hills and try and keep them from working together. And then three years later, construction would begin on Hadrian's Wall. This wasn't a pacified border by any means. And the cost of this project was incredible, as we've spoken about in the episode dedicated to it. But that was the scale of the threat that these tribes presented. Unlike the tribes to the south, these Britons could not be subjugated. They occupied lands that seemed uninhabitable to the Romans. They still held on to ancient beliefs. And frankly, they kind of gave them the heebie-jeebies. And can you blame them? These are the descendants of the same people we've been speaking about for over a month. And a lot of what we've been speaking about is a little bit unnerving. So yeah, the Romans probably had the heebie-jeebies. And wasn't helped by the fact that a lot of these tribes weren't afraid of Rome and kept on attacking. So Hadrian built his wall. But Hadrian, being a hipster, was rather concerned with appearance. Sure, the wall had a function. It controlled movement and prevented organized resistance, much like the other barriers that the Romans had constructed elsewhere in Scotland. But additionally, it functioned as a way to say to the northern tribes, Hey! We're incredibly powerful, and you're crazy if you keep messing with us. And now we're getting into territory that we've already covered quite well. I mean, we have the construction of the wall, and then Antoninus's push and his wall, the retreat, the rebuilding, the continuing uprisings, and whatnot. And through all of this, the northern tribes, while giving the Romans a headache, were continually on the losing side. But by the time we reach the end of the 2nd century AD, we start to get hints of things turning around. I mean, it might not have been obvious at the time when we were talking about it since we were covering this material over the course of months. But by the end of the 2nd century, the tides of war were definitely changing. For example, we heard of a general and his troops being killed by a group of tribes who crossed the wall. We heard of the governor of Britannia having to buy peace with the tribes north of the wall, such as the Maite. We started to see the Caledonian alliances once again, and new attacks upon Rome by these alliances. 
Now sure, in the 3rd century we have Severus and his terrible sons Gaeta and Caracalla either marching beyond the wall or occupying York for about four years. So all the power of Rome was centralized frighteningly close to the rebellious tribes. But even during that period, we heard about the massive losses that Severus sustained during his march north, thanks to the Caledonian guerrilla tactics. And of course, during this period we also saw campaigns of Roman genocide north of the wall, especially against the Maiate. But once again, in the face of all these atrocities, the luck was with the tribes, because Severus died before he could complete his extermination, and Caracalla determined that Scotland was way more trouble than it was worth, and so he had his forces march south and refortify Hadrian's Wall. And following that decision, the region saw nearly a century of peace. But as the saying goes in one of my favorite series of books, the North remembers. And 80 years later, a new name would appear, the Picts. And this group would have a dramatic effect upon the future of the entire island. And next episode, we're going to discuss what we know about the Picts and finally unite the Scott cast with the main podcast and move into the Anglo-Saxon period. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to join our conversation over at Facebook, I encourage you to do so. It's at facebook.com slash britishhistory. You can also head over to our website, thebritishhistorypodcast.com, and check out what's going on over there and join the forums. All right, well, I think that's about it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.